This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 104 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Brian Hoagley. He's a partner at Side Channel Security, a consulting firm in the Boston area. Prior to forming Side Channel, he was chief security officer for the Hanover Insurance Group. Earlier in his career, he held civilian leadership positions at the Pentagon, helping organizations in the Department of Defense implement cybersecurity best practices. Today, he helps organizations of all sizes evaluate their security using a risk-based approach, all while taking advantage of his own expertise in threat intelligence implementations and strategic organizational initiatives. Stay with us. I started as a kid getting into computers, so think kind of mid-late 80s, grade school, middle school, working on computers and trying not to get into trouble and <laughs> and and then getting into trouble. And then after uh, after high school, a little bit of community college, but really wasn't my uh, really wasn't my 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 thing. Um, hmm. I actually spent that time in those classes doing um, uh, sociology and psychology um, uh, coursework more than hmm. really anything. I, I kind of really enjoyed kind of how people think and and why do why do groups think the way they do and why do the groups make decisions and then why do you know obviously individuals and how do they make decisions. And then I went to, you know, I went to work doing security work, um, you know, initially. And then, you know, you know, a little bit of time of that just kind of being free, you know, being young. I mean, up until I was about 22. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can imagine what that's like. Good job, you know, kind of free, um, haven't gone to college. But I had that um, kind of that nagging uh, voice in the back of my head, which actually was my mother, uh, kind of <laughs> constantly reminding me, like, you should go to college. So... Um, I finally, you know, at like 22, I, um, I broke down and went, um, went to school. So went to a a technical school up in, uh, upstate New York near Syracuse called Morrisville State College. I'm actually speaking tomorrow, um, there to, um, to the current class and, Hmm. uh, students. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good program actually where I ended up meeting my wife. Uh, it was an interesting college dynamic because it was an agricultural and technical school. So Hmm. on one side of campus, you had kids learning about how to, you know, run a dairy farm or where my wife came from was the equine program on like, you know, managing horses and managing horse racing or just, Hmm. you know, hunter jumper and, you know, that kind of thing. And then on the other side, you had, you know, computer and information technology and network administration and web development. It was and then somewhere in the middle, you had a very small kind of liberal arts, you know, um, kind of program. So it was a very dynamic, very diverse group of students, you know, was, but um, it, it made for a good time. Uh, so I did my four years uh, there, uh, had, a, had a great internship coming out of that with um, a company called Shot, uh, the Shot Fiber Optics, actually. Hmm. Um, and then I got my start with um, down in the DOD doing some, uh, some just initially some consulting uh, work and then getting onto some um, larger programs within the Defense Department, um, and then kind of within that, you know, within that timeline of eight, eight, nine years, supported a number of different agencies, a number of different intelligence. Well, one particular uh, intelligence community uh, agency, and and then I kind of capstoned it um, as 
the information assurance program manager for the Pentagon. Um, hmm. And the IAP, it's called the IAPM. That role is essentially what a CISO is for the corporate world. So your job is to oversee, you know, the policy, the governance, the structure of um, of the security for for that space. So I was in a contract role in that the government leads, you know, were, you know, GS 15s, GS 14s for those. I was the lead, um, for, for that area and supported them and built out the, the program. So I got to watch and see basically how, you know, the, the lead for a major security organization as large as what was responsible for Pentagon. I'll kind of explain that in a second, um, was, uh, you know, operated, they had physical security, information security. So, you know, I was great because I was at the right hand of that for, for a long time. And uh, really kind of soaked it in. So I, I knew, you know, if I ever left the department, I, you know, went into private space. I kind of had my eye on, you know, what is it, what is it I want to do? And the CISO role was the one that, you know, made sense. And I felt my differentiator was that I had come up kind of through the ranks of doing pen testing and enterprise architecture and security engineering and, and the whole realm. And then had gotten into the policy side of the shop. Um, and, and kind of coupling all that, I felt I had a really good connection in being able to talk to and understand anybody on my staff, be able to really articulate the very technical aspects of security, what the risks are that were associated with that to laymen and to non-technical folks. Hmm. Um, so just quickly on, the, on how the Pentagon was structured, it was interesting. Um, yeah. it, it, people don't realize this, but the, uh, the Pentagon is actually an army reservation, and it, it actually goes back to... Um, uh, General Lee in the Civil War, uh, you'll see Arlington National Cemetery is in that is like right next door. And when Lee lost the um, uh, lost with the South, um, he actually in a battle specifically in that area. So this not legend, but history goes, and I, I should be pretty right on this one. Um, <laughs> Montgomery was a general in the North. He personally lost one of his sons to Lee in that battle. And he took it out by burying all of his dead in Lee's wife's flower garden. And you'll see that actually if you go up to Arlington National Cemetery still. So that's Arlington and that's that area. But there's this whole region just below that that was basically swamp um, and and not that great a land, which got filled in and, and essentially became where the Pentagon was built. So when you step on there, it's not like, you know, it's DOD or, you know, it's Joint Chiefs or SecDef that run that. It's actually Army. Um, hmm. So because of that... Um, what had happened was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Pentagon, but it's, yeah. the, it's the largest low rise office building in the world, five floors above ground, two floors below ground that you know about, right? It hosts about 65,000 people in that building or so. And it's, it's a, it's like a city, right? It's got five zip codes. It's internally, it's got its own DMV. It's got its own post office. It's got every amenity that you could possibly need. It's got a beautiful, mm -hmm. um, athletic center and everything. Well, all of these different groups, right. Are headquartered there. Headquarters, army, Navy. Um, Joint Chiefs are headquartered there, Office of Sec Secretary of Defense. Um, and everyone was kind of doing their own thing when it came to IT. Well, under Clinton, um, Clinton basically uh, created this thing that wrote this edict, or I think it was an executive order, that collapsed all of that and said, you know what, we need some efficiencies here. He's going to stand up underneath the U.S. Army, because they're the one who owned the land, a group called ITA, uh, Information Technology Agency, to basically be the service provider for all things to all parties inside the Pentagon. Hmm. So I worked for that organization. Um, and then I, I recently learned I think in the last two years, it, it 
merged into what's called DISA, which is the Defense Information System Agency, right? Uh, which is right. a larger, broader group. So, um, so we were basically the service provider, right? So for everyone within that, so all of these different headquarters groups, SecDef, even the White House, you know, reported up through us to connect to any type of unclassified and classified, you know, networks. And, and our job was to protect them within the security space was to, you know, make sure that we were meeting, you know, our regulations and our internal requirements to protect and safeguard all of their operations. So it was a very dynamic, very interesting space. I mean, you, you can imagine all my customers were, yeah. you know, one to four stars and, and, <laughs> and, and what years are we talking about here? Uh, so I came to, I left in 2015, so mm. it was, so it was 2010 to 2015. Okay. Yeah. I was just trying to get a sense for, you know, what kind of, um, uh, challenges were you facing in, in the security space? And, but not, it's not that long ago. No, it, it wasn't, but I mean, it, I wouldn't say there was any shortage of, of challenges. You know, we yeah. still had to deal with, and, and like I see with, um, you know, people I talk to and my peers and. Other organizations, you know, there's, everyone's still dealing with some of the basics, right? The the concepts of just having a secure and, and a grounded, you know, well-established foundation of controls that they can meet, you know, secure configurations on deployment, like a, a reasonable and attainable vulnerability management strategy, um, having a selected defense in depth, having visibility into all of your endpoints and your assets and your network traffic. Being able to digest um, intelligence from other sources to be able to help you make better decisions about what's going on in your environment. Everybody's struggling with that. And, you know, honestly, government's no different. I mean, they just, they might be a little farther ahead. They might have, I think they're a little farther ahead than, than most corporate groups. Um, hmm. But, you know, everyone still kind of seems to go back to that and realize, hmm, maybe we're not doing this as great as, as we should. Um well what are some of the the interpersonal things that you had to deal with dealing dealing with so many high level people uh, does that come into play do you do you run into folks who are uh not used to being told what they can and cannot do of course um i think that's the same you know within business and and within dod um it was something that i had to you know i honestly i struggled with a bit transitioning out of government work but hmm. you know when you position a you know an action that needs to get taken whether it's you know, a government employee who, you know, is, is high up or an SES who is, a, you know, they're basically the civilian equivalent of a one or a two star or even just, you know, generals who are sitting there listening, going, you know, I'm the one who dictates what's going to happen. They have to take advice from the experts. And sometimes that's hard for everybody. But as long as you can broker the conversation correctly and in the appropriate way, you know, you're basically just selling the idea of what it is you need to do. And, and, positioning it so that they can make a decision because ultimately it's their decision of what it is that, you know, direction that, you know, the, that organization or agency is, is going to take, you know, my responsibility was to bring forward, you know, the most relevant, the most timely, the most accurate information so that those decisions could be made. And, and I can't help, uh, but, but think that, um, your interest and in your studying early on of things like sociology, must have served you well when it came to being able to sell those ideas to those people. I, th I think it did. And I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, you know, like I never, I probably would have studied a little harder in college there <laughs> if I had known that I was really going to use those skills later on. But yeah, no, it, understanding how people think and how their decision-making goes um, 
and, and just how that life cycle works and how someone actually comes to a decision and what information do people need to be able to make a decision and, and maybe even just what format does that information need to be presented in? You know, mm-hmm. it could be simple things like just reading and understanding that, you know, you know, this stakeholder really responds well if I produce graphics and, you know, short bullet points. Whereas maybe this stakeholder really needs, likes to read, you know, they're, they, they need to be able to really read through and then ask questions. So kind of understanding the audience to be able to then position that information. That's, I think what really helped me be successful in, in gaining a lot of traction and making a lot of significant positive changes in the organizations I've been in. And so after you left uh, your work in government, where did you go next? I, I went over to the, the Hanover insurance group. They're a, um, a product and casualty insurance company based in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Uh, they actually <laughs> recruited me out of um, out of the uh, my space in uh, in DoD, and I took the role as the chief information security officer there. Um, and the reason I took the role was um, my um, manager, my boss at the time, was essentially not really the CIO. Um, he brought in a new team um, of CIOs to oversee different respective uh, business lines within product and casualty. So insurance has, you know, auto and, you know, per- which is like personal lines and you've got like commercial lines and you've got specialty mm-hmm. lines types of, um, you know, insurance. So you had CIOs that were overseeing these various areas as well as, you know, s- corporate functions as well. So I liked that because the structure I was walking into was very similar to that in which I was at seen at Pentagon where security did not report to IT. They were equals. And mm. that, that was that was the reason I actually picked that job over my other offers at the time. Because that's the direction that really everyone needs to kind of go in. And the, it's 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 multifaceted why, but I think the biggest reason is that businesses and companies need to realize and really start putting their foot down and saying that information security is not an IT risk. It's a business risk. And by positioning security deep and underneath the CIO or, or IT dilutes the, um, the effectiveness of seeing security as a business risk, because now you're part of the IT budget. You're part of the IT agenda. You're always part of the IT dialogue. And by not breaking out of that, you're stuck within that. So everyone just looks at you as if you're an IT issue or an IT risk. It's really an enterprise risk, right? It's an organizational risk. It's a business risk. And you're seeing more and more companies starting to take the CISO and having them report through different lines, whether it's through chief compliance officer or maybe even, you know, you, sometimes you see it with the CFO or sometimes you even start seeing them through um, directly report to the CEO or even to the board. Um, and that allows those, those individuals to be able to get that direct um, transparent access to that opinion, which is really what they need. Describe to us what is your business that you're doing at Side Channel Securities, primarily consulting? Who are you helping there? We are targeting and working with small and medium businesses. And the reason we, we chose that is because we know that the larger organizations have CISOs. And coincidentally, right, the um, small and medium businesses still need that level of advice and guidance, but there is no way that they're going to be able to handle the, you know, the cost um, of a full-time CISO, you know, at that caliber. And they might not even need a full-time person to be able to do that, right? They might not even have that many, uh, that much work, 
right, to, to actually get done, even from a strategic standpoint. So we've developed a, uh, my partner and I have developed a, uh, a virtual CISO offering. Um, and there's a couple other groups that are out there doing that. But I think we differentiate ourselves because we're actually CISOs or have been CISOs. And we're not just performing security consulting. So we've actually sat and talked to the board. We've had to broker conversations with CFOs to secure budget. You know, we've had to make hard decisions on risk within an enterprise. We've had to lead organizations through breaches, right? And through incidents. We've had to talk and deal with regulators. I don't think you see a lot of security consultants who are kind of offering their VCISO services doing that. So we felt, you know, small businesses, medium businesses, underserved market, and they deserve this type of advice and guidance as well. And we were actually with a number of nonprofits. Um, our first customer was a nonprofit. Um, hmm. Also a number of VC-backed um, companies because those groups have some really good stakeholders, right? You've got the venture capitalists who wants to make sure that their investment is sound. And then you've got future customers that want to know that the product they're buying or getting into is secure. Everyone today now only wants to buy things that they can trust. Uh, and the more that I think we can help small, medium businesses realize that, right, the better off I think the whole um, can, you know, the whole, you know, everybody rises, right. Kind of a concept. Yeah. Um, and it's actually going to end up helping larger organizations. So I had just written an article, uh, yesterday on, on LinkedIn around, um, you know, their risk is your risk and large organizations. And I saw this, I, I ran this really are putting the hammer down on smaller organizations in their supply chain as third parties to be able to attest to their security posture, because large organizations realize that, their, you know, the smaller organization's risk is now actually their risk. And the problem is, is that they, you know, can't effectively do it at a small organization. So we're trying to provide the services and we are actually providing services to a number of clients right now to be able to make that a reality. And when you sit down with someone for the first time, is there a... Is there an eye-opening sort of process? Do, do folks at those smaller size businesses, do they know what they don't know? No. And I'll tell you, I don't think, I think that that same conversation could happen just about anywhere. But with, um, with smaller organizations and mid sized businesses, you know, that eye opening moment is usually starts with, you know, what is it your company's mission is? And then underneath that, what are your object, uh, objectives and what are your obligations? Um, the, the, uh, Center for Internet Security actually has a, a really great kind of risk, uh, model. On doing that, it's really simple and really easy to use. Um, if you haven't figured it out for me, I'm a big guy on like open source and like easy to use, like available things that can just make you better. So I, mm. it's kind of a lot of what I talk about and and leverage. But um, with regard to you know that aha moment, it, it's usually we don't know what we don't know, right? But I mean, we kind of know what we have. We maybe know what assets we have or where some data is, but we're not actually sure what's critical and what's not. And if you told us that we needed to defend something, we wouldn't know what we would need to defend first over something else. So a lot of our discussion is this discovery of just establishing and right-sizing an organization's risk. So they're not trying to secure everything because they can't, they never will. And they probably don't even need to, right? Um, we had a uh, concept within the DOD of being able to operate while compromised. So if you can establish your critical assets and identify your critical assets, and make sure everyone's on the same page that those are your critical assets. Everything else is ancillary, right? So you can now maintain your position in your defense around your critical assets 
And if your ancillary or secondary assets become compromised, that's okay because your business or your organization or your mission is still being able to be fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, that's a message that I'm hearing over and over again. And, and I think it's really been elevated lately is this is this dialing in of risk of having the defense aligned with what your business's risk posture is. Yeah, it is. I think you'll see from like an auditor standpoint, even outside auditors, maybe even internal auditors. I mean, I work with the inspector general's group and their audits of DOD. Um, I saw that there as well, which was, you know, a compliance play and a compliance view of risk assumes that the likelihood of that control breaking or that attack happening is 100%. And that forces organizations to have to secure against everything all the time, everywhere. And it's impossible. And I think, well, I know, when you take a risk management standpoint, you actually factor in realistic likelihood scenarios of an of that type of an attack happening or that type of a compromise or that type of an incident uh, manifesting itself. And the second you do that, you can now start prioritizing what it is you're realistically up against. I think a lot of CISOs and a lot of CIOs um, and maybe just business owners, they're defending their organizations from within their castle walls. They've never stepped outside their kingdom to even look back at their castle to figure out, am I set up right? Could somebody attack me this way or that way? And that's why you probably see a larger uptick in pen tests and, and that sort of work happening. But you know, that's point in time and that's, that's once. If you take a, you know, a risk management approach to the whole thing, you're constantly doing that. You're constantly looking at that through, through different lenses. You're not just leveraging a consistent pen test. You're actually looking at your controls all the time in a way. It's called continuous monitoring. It's really effective and it's, it's not as hard as I think most people um, think. But, you know, I've, I've joked about this, you know, it's, everyone's building 15 foot, you know, walls and no one realizes that the attackers are out there out there with 16 foot ladders. And I'll even go yeah. so far, I'll <laughs> even go so far to say, you know, from an Intel, you know, cuz I really like intelligence ingestion and usage. Nobody's calling out to other kingdoms and asking other people, "Hey, have you seen anybody with 16 foot ladders or anything bigger than 15 foot, uh, you know, 15 foot ladders?" Right. right? Nobody's even asking that. Um and I think, you know, it's beginning but it's it's not as good as it should be, and that, I think that was the one thing that you saw or I saw within the uh, within the government was the intelligence sharing at the level that it was, and how effective it it, it was to make operations even better. I, I want to uh, focus some on threat intelligence because I know that's an area uh, that you have a lot to say about, and uh, it's certainly one of our focuses here on this show. Um, what what is your take on threat threat intelligence? How how should organizations be using it and dialing it in? I I definitely think organizations should be using it, but I think they need to grow to be able to use it. And I, I think it's a miss for organizations that don't have a mature enough understanding of their their own security posture or even the attack um, or the threat vectors that are out there to to really effectively use threat intel. You know, if you're just getting feeds and data, it's just data. It's not intelligence until you put context around it. And there's a maturity that needs to happen with any organization to be able to effectively start using that. Um, and then don't even get me started on, you know, when you're mature enough to actually start sharing it back out. Because, hmm. you know, your ability to be able to create real actionable intelligence for others to be able to make decisions off of is, I mean, that's a high caliber skill. And that's not something that just kind of comes easy or comes from a firewall log or a proxy log or something that you saw, yeah, you could probably have a larger incident that 
manifests itself and then gives you enough information to be able to put something together. But if you're a smaller org and you're getting hit by things like that, chances are the larger organizations that are mature enough to do that are already kind of producing that intelligence for usage. So I try to keep people away from jumping into trying to develop Intel, start figuring out what is it you, you need to use and then right size the type of intelligence you're supposed to be using um, and even digesting it. I mean, I've seen folks and talked to folks that tell me they've got this feed or that feed and, and these and, and I'm like, okay, well, how much is it, is it really relevant? Um, and you can, you know, a simple exercise for relevancy is just, do you even have an attack surface that is susceptible to anything that this Intel is talking about? It's like, you're not running any IIS servers. Hmm. Why are you picking up or, or responding to or even digesting anything on IOCs on IIS servers or the things that are p- positioning that? I mean, that's a really basic example, but I mean, you've got to be able to kind of know your environment to be able to know what is it you want to learn about, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Intel is, is it's the context around data that's been synthesized through proper analysis to then be brought forward to be used in an actionable way. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's something that you know everyone really benefits from. We've been part of the, um, the FSISAC. Uh, my partner's part of the, um, the healthcare ISAC. I know folks in the manufacturing ISACs. Those are you know been really good organizations, great clearinghouses. It's, it's coming together. Um, but I also know that there's other capabilities out there that are better and, and fine-tuned and a little bit more actionable. So I think it's a hard thing to kind of weed through, like what's the right thing to get if you were going to get into it. But I think you'll know um, if you're a security leader in, in your uh, organization, you'll kind of have a sense of if your team has the ability to digest this or not. Like, are you still tackling like firewall configurations and endpoint visibility and you know, like if you're still kind of fumbling through those basic building blocks, eh, maybe Intel's not right for you just yet. Maybe you put that on next year's, you know, goal because mm. it's not going to be useful if you don't have that foundation in place, right? How are you going to be able to digest it appropriately, synthesize it, get into tickets in front of your analysts? How are you going to be able to then use that to then respond through some type of, you know, whatever platform or EDR or Counter-Strike kind of capability you have within your organization? You know, if you don't even have that, you know, you, people are just getting intel and going, okay, great, this is good. This is good news to know. Uh, this is a cool story, but I can't do anything with it yet, right? So it's got to be actionable. What is your advice for folks who are starting down this pathway? The, that small to medium sized company who, uh, you know, like like we said earlier, they don't know what they don't know, but they they know they want to know more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do they engage? How do they shop around? For someone who does the sorts of things that you all do at Side Channel, yeah. um, but then, uh, what? How do they know what questions to ask? How do they find that trusted partner? Yeah, I th- you know, I, I think you've got to work your network. You know, you've you've got to talk to people that you know and trust already. They're in maybe your peers, other CISOs, just other folks, and see you know how they've responded. Um, I mean, the referrals are are a huge thing. I've leveraged them a lot as a CISO. You know, when I'm especially when I'm looking at products or or features, um, and even just some salespeople, you know, getting to know and really maximizing your network to then use and say, Hey, I'm doing a POC on this platform. Have you guys done that? You have, what did you like? What you didn't like? Here's my use cases. Did you have the same ones? Did they work out the way you expected? What were the pitfalls? What were the things that you could have asked or wished you asked, you know, during the the beginning? It's like, you get really got to do a lot of like reference kind of calls as you're looking for information about, really anything that you're going to procure if that's within your space. So I think, you know, you've, you've got to start there and, and kind of just ask 
you know, for a second and third opinion. I think that's a good start. Our thanks to Brian Hoagley from Side Channel Security for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.